Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the book pod with Cory Perkin. The fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and thank you for joining today's episode of The Book Pod. I'm Corrie Perkin, journalist, Writers Festival director and former bookshop owner and my guest today is a friend and a colleague, Jock Sarong, whose new novel, The Settlement, arrived in bookstores a few weeks ago. Jock is one of Australia's most talented and exciting writers. I've been a big fan of his work since he first arrived on the publishing scene in 2016 with his first novel, Quota. Quota won that year's Ned Kelly Award for Best First Novel. He is a skilled wordsmith. He is an elegant creator of place and atmosphere. He is a master with dialogue and his characters are usually flawed and complex but completely real. We easily glue on to their stories and enthusiastically follow them through cricket fields and suburban backyards, through scrub and wilderness and across oceans and coral reefs just to find out what happened next. Will the guy in hand ties who is locked in the boot of the car be shot or will he be thrown off a cliff? Will the well-heeled surfers from Australia on the cruiser boat find their magic wave? Will the evil Mr Fig finally meet a sticky end? A Joxerong novel ensures those pages are turning and turning quickly. Joxerong's novels have received the ARA Historical Novel Prize, the prestigious Colin Roderick Award, as I said, the Ned Kelly Award for First Fiction and internationally the inaugural Staunch Prize out of the UK and the Historia Award for Historical Crime Fiction from France. The Settlement is Jock's sixth novel. A former Melbourne lawyer who now lives in Port Ferry with his wife and four children, Jock took the plunge a few years ago to write full-time and his pace is furious. His non-fiction pieces regularly appear in the monthly and other publications and he is a board member of Melbourne's Wheeler Centre where he is a keen advocate for writers. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Jock Sarong. Jock, it is great to have you on the program. Thanks, Gary. Really good to see you. We are recording this potties in September, a month of very big and significant news stories. But one of my Stop the Presses moments was... 
a couple of weeks ago when I spied your new novel, The Settlement, on a bookshop shelf. It had arrived. Yay. <laughs> Congratulations. That's Thank the you. news. It's always a great moment. It's been not, a, not such a long time coming because it's only been a couple of years since your previous novel, but I know this one has sat very heavily with you. Yeah, yeah. And, and Partly because of the content of it. Yeah, novels do funny things in the making in the time compresses and expands and you go through periods of great urgency when you're, for instance, trying to get the edits done. But then there's a lot of time in your own head and a lot of time very close to the subject matter. And yeah, this is, this is heavy subject matter and um, I carried it around for a long while. Well, the end result is outstanding, Jock. I read it in a couple of nights. At times it's horrifying and, and it's a thriller and it's just so deeply provocative it provoked me to think about Australian history, early European settlement, and how we got it all so utterly wrong. So the timing of this, particularly as we head toward a referendum on the voice to parliament, I think you're going to have a lot to say in the next few months. <laughs> to potties who are yet to pick up their copy of the book, The Settlement, it's the third and final in Jock's celebrated Furno Islands trilogy. Preservation, the first in the series and set in 1797, was published in 2019. The second novel, The Burning Island, was published in 2020, right in the middle of one of the Melbourne lockdowns. But nonetheless, people went out and bought it and Jock did Zoom, many Zoom interviews, but it was a wonderful book as well. And it picked up the story of Joshua Grayling and the menacing Mr Fig, two characters who he'd met in Preservation. And we meet them in the Burning Island a couple of decades after their last encounter. And now we have the settlement, set in Tasmania and also the wild and windswept islands of Bass Strait. This is the final in this most brilliant series and a novel that really pushes its readers into some dark and dreadful moments, as I said, in Australia's early European settlement history. Jock, before we dig in deep into the settlement, I wonder if you would do us the honour of reading a little bit from your novel. Sure, this is, the, um, this is the start of the novel. It's a chapter called Embers. When he came to the clearing where the child had gone, the bad feeling was already well ahead of him. The boy, Welk, was there in the open, looking back over his shoulder at his own small footprints in the ash. Tiny whirls where the air was hot and escaping. He had walked into the centre of the clearing, high trees all around him, a little smoke still rose from the place where the fire had been, and even several yards back, the surveyor could feel the warmth of it on his face. The ground must be glowing hot under the boy's feet, but he was paying no heed, and he seemed unaware of the surveyor watching him. He reached his fingers into the gloom, seeking balance. A misplaced step could crush through the powdery surface. A burnt foot would slow everybody down. The man would be displeased. The man was often displeased. That's beautiful. Jock. Preservation and the Burning Island, I felt, were true historical thrillers. They had us on the edge of our seats. There was a lot of, a lot of blood and guts and a lot of whodunit behind the reader's journey. But I must say I agree with Jackie Tang's review of The Settlement, which recently appeared on the Readings website. And Jackie writes, Jock Sarong's two previous historical novels, Preservation and The Burning Island, were hailed as gripping literary thrillers. This book, The Settlement, however, trades the roving journey in those earlier works for something different. Though it's equally compelling to read and also powered by Sarong's descriptive muscular prose, 
the settlement takes a slower, more mournful pace. It has to because the focus is truly harrowing, the genocide of Tasmania's First Peoples and their forced displacement to a settlement at Pea Jacket Point on Flinders Island. Jock, was it a deliberate decision to change the pace of this third and final novel? Yeah, it was. Um, And initially I wrote the entire novel fixed in one location in the settlement and the result was very, very claustrophobic. It was pretty short and it, it really felt extremely static. And it's interesting that observation about the previous two novels, that they had a geographical sweep about them. So preservation really is the story of a very long walk and Burning Island is the story of a voyage. And I was conscious when I wrote this short first draft that we were stuck in place. And to some extent that was deliberate because I wanted to evoke the terrible... Uh, the oppressive atmosphere of this place. But what I then went on to do in subsequent drafts was to include some of Robinson roving around Tasmania, bringing in the Palawa and Pakana people so that there is some motion and, and some geography to it. The other difference I think that, that perhaps that review alludes to is that here I was working between two major sources. One is is the ruins of the settlement itself. So there's a sort of windswept plain that's just grassy and there's broken bricks and not much else. And the other is the Diary of Robinson, which is enormous and incredibly overabundant. There's too much of it. And so in, in writing fiction off those two sources, you're trying to draw something out of the ground and equally you're trying to distill something out of Robinson just to pick little bits of fruit off that enormous tree. So that results in, in a different writing rhythm, I think. It is really different prose to those first two books. It really it really is, and you can feel it as you, as you read through. Tell us about George Augustus Robinson. Your story is based on the true story of his journey and the settlement at Waibalina. Have I pronounced that correctly? And what did you discover about Robinson and why were you drawn to his story? And can you fill in for those who are not familiar with his name, his quite significant role in Tasmania's history? Yeah, so initially I was trying to write about the settlement itself and I remember having had a discussion with the historian Cassandra Pybus and she said, you're going to wind up writing Robinson. Robinson, anyone who tries to write this history winds up writing Robinson. He takes over Uh, and indeed he did. Robinson was... He was a bricklayer, he was an ordinary settler, very religious man, who came to the governor of Tasmania in the late 1820s and put this proposition to him. He said, you've got a genocide on your hands and I'm willing to go out into the wilds and find the surviving Tasmanian Aboriginal people, negotiate with them and bring them into safety so that the settlers don't murder them all. And the governor's leapt at this, it's just the perfect solution. So... What do you think drove Robinson apart from um, blind ambition? Piety, I think. A lot of the Bible. It was all about the Bible for Robinson. And initially, and one of the really interesting things about him as a historical figure is that people who've written about him tend to fall into two camps, either that he was a misguided saviour and that um, his intentions were good but he stuffed it up, is one version. The other version is that he was a villain all along. And I think the truth, of course, in all of these instances lies somewhere between, which is that he started out extremely idealistic and really went to the governor hoping to prevent a calamity or to stop a calamity, but that along the way he became very enamoured of his own authority and started to become meaner and more arrogant and more duplicitous. So what I hope that the novel does is to span 
the idealism through to the mean old man that he became. Mm, and the factors that played in that. And yeah. and in your book, of course, we're very cognizant of the fact that he has his he has his goal or his sight set on Port Phillip as a potential next step in the career ladder. That's mm-hmm. where he'd like to go and that's the sort of area he'd like to run. Was that actually evident in Robinson's diaries? Yeah, it was, that somewhere along the way he developed a sense of career. He was a husband and a father, but he cast all that aside. He was a, a pretty awful family man, but he became very interested in career, and that manifested in two ways. One was his great desire to have this Port Phillip posting, because if you think about the timing, Robinson's on Flinders Island in early 18, sorry, late 1835, just after Batman has done his shonky deal on the banks of the Yarra to found Melbourne. So there's a whole new civilization starting to the north of him that he's really interested in. There's that. And the other thing is that he sees himself as being a witness to a moment in history, which is the probable extinction of the Tasmanians. And he sees that as an extraordinarily important position to be in. So he wants to write his memoirs have them published in London, go on the speaking circuit and find fame that way. And these are not things I'm extrapolating. He writes all this down. So those two ambitions were driving him at this particular moment that the novel covers, which is 1835, 1836. Now, Flinders Island is part of the Ferno Islands area and I know you've spoken about this a lot before. Indeed, you and I have had many chats about this area. But tell our potties what it means to you and why the area lured you to tell these three extraordinary stories? Um, Well, to to place them geographically, Tasmania has two sets of islands to the north of it, sort of like inverted commas. On the west side is King Island, which has a couple of smaller islands around it, but it's really mostly solitary. On the east side is the Furneaux Group, which, depending who you talk to, is somewhere between 50 and 100 islands. And Flinders is the big one. Flinders is about 60 kilometres by 30. The islands are made of granite, And in fact, I was talking about this a while ago and there was a geologist in the room. It's nothing worse than there being an expert in the room when you're rabbiting on like you know (laughs) things. And he pointed out to me that both of the approaches to the Australian continent, the north one at Cape York and the south one at Bass Strait, are made of granite. And that's often the the case geologically, that entrances are formed by granite. So they, they sit there like these kind of teeth in Bass Strait. And they're very, very beautiful islands. Because it's glittery granite, when it erodes, it forms these beautiful quartz beaches and the quartz beaches form beautiful blue shallows and and everything is so extraordinarily lovely to look at. The the vegetation is very original. And so I've been going there and, and my wife's been going there and we've been going there as a family all the way back to my early 20s. And I've always loved the place, but long before I had any inkling at all about being a writer, I was very caught up in the stories of the islands, which are mostly shipwreck stories, but other stories as well. And you utterly cannot avoid the story of Waibalina. The the ruins are there, the surnames connected to the people involved, who you you still bump into them down the street. Um, The history is quite continuous in that sense, but equally, as I said earlier, if you're walking around the paddocks that were Waibalina, it's a bit of a riddle because you, you can see traces of the physical presence, but it's not speaking clearly. And I found those things just so captivating. The notion of a beautiful place that has a horrible past. Um, yeah. As, and now that I write stories, I think I felt like that moment was always looming, that I was going to have to grapple with it as a storyteller. Is it a place where you feel the spirits or the voices of, of others, of people gone by? Is it? I don't mean creepy, but is there a presence about it? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's only 800 people there on a very large piece of land. And as I said, those, most of those people trace back in one way or another to this history. And I was going to say a lot of the land management is very old. The graveyard is still there at Waibalina. The chapel has been restored, but it was a hay shed for generations. And so there's a strong sense of continuity. And where I think that plays into the novel is there's a variety of reasons you can write about the past, but it seems to me to be pretty pointless unless it's telling you something about the present. And Waibalina tells you a lot about the ways that we as a society talk to and talk about Aboriginal people in the present. So it's worth the exercise of exploring this darkness in order to see what the mistakes are that we're repeating. The book begins, of course, with the journey through Tasmania that George Robinson embarks upon. At the beginning of your story, he's known as The Man, and then when the scene shifts to to Flinders Island, he becomes the Commandant. But the man, he's relying heavily on the knowledge and compliance of uh, one respected Indigenous leader in particular known as the chief, Man Alagina. Man Alagina? Man Alagena. Man Alagena. <laughs> Thanks, Jock. Man Alagena. <laughs> That's very close. Is he a true character? Yes, he is. And Man Alagena works symbolically, works almost as an Abraham figure for Tasmanian Aboriginal people. The orthodoxy up until the late 80s was that the Tasmanians were in fact extinct and we know much better now. And a lot of people, every successive census, more and more Tasmanian people are identifying as Aboriginal and most of them will trace their lineage through Manalagena. He uh, had a daughter named Fanny Cochran who survived Waibalena and she had, I think, had a lot of children and so that's the lineage that people tend to identify He was a warrior early in his life, but we know extremely little about that. He was a tribal leader. He, Late in his life, he operated really as a politician almost and a diplomat. He's a very wily, shrewd man. Robinson had him in his party, as you said, when he was going out into Tasmania to negotiate with people. And then late in the piece, he took Manalagena to Flinders Island, which brought about his death. He died within a couple of months of arriving there. He's, a, he's an extraordinary character and to see him physically shrinking before our eyes is a kind of a, a lovely an analogy for what's, what's happening with his community. His desire to ensure the survival of Tasmanians' Indigenous population is what's driving him and it forces him really to do a deal with the devil at this stage, the man, but when he becomes the commandant, I can tell you what I'm feeling, that he's a bit like the devil. But um, <laughs> but for me, it's one of the saddest parts of your novel, just the lies that were told to him, his sense of bewilderment that this has happened and that he's been hoodwinked into thinking that if he takes his people, if he, if he agrees and takes his people to the island, that they will be saved and looked after and cared for. Yeah, it is a terribly sad idea um, and also that he was responsible for going out to other Tasmanian nations, not, not only his own people but other peoples, some of whom he was in conflict with to persuade them that this was a wise thing to do and the history, particularly among Palawa people now, versions of that history differ significantly about what Manalagena's role was and I think the other important counterbalance to that that always needs to be remembered is that there was a lot of defiance even once these people were on Flinders Island 
they maintained their beliefs and they tried very hard to maintain language, familial ties, all of those things. And late in the Waibalina settlement in 1846, they had set up an Aboriginal newspaper, which is the first First Nations media in Australia, in effect, and they wrote a petition to Queen Victoria, which still stands as the first petition by a subjugated Indigenous people to the British monarch. So there were subsequent ones like the Yakala Bark and, and other things and Burnham Burnham going to the Cliffs of Dover, you know. But this is the first time that anybody had written to the Queen and said, we are being mistreated and we've been lied to and we want this fixed. So the defiance was always there and is still there, which I think gives a significant counterbalance to the despair. And the Governor of Tasmania also has a lot to answer for. Of course, in your novel, there is, as, as you said earlier, the problem was kind of solved. He's ticked his KPI boxes and then drops the community, drops the, the whole Flinders Island situation as, as in the too hard basket. That is also a devastating part of this novel. And I, mm. and I gather you would have researched that significantly. What, what were your feelings when you, you realised that these are European settlers who have taken over lands, put themselves in control of the land they are the leaders and they are so terribly dismissive of any plea for help. Yeah, and this is there in the documents, but I, I put the words in the mouth of the surgeon that Robinson hasn't realised that in perpetrating this deception he's also been deceived because he's now out of sight and out of mind. He's effectively placed himself off the agenda by being on this island with all of the people who were, to use inverted commas, the problem. So... Robinson is not as shrewd as he thinks he is. In the end, he, he's consigned himself to oblivion. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Paul Daly, another friend of the podcast, he reviewed your book and he and I discussed it not long ago when he was on The Book Pod and he loved The Settlement and he says... The settlement is a shocking but perversely beautiful evocation of the endurance and dignity of Aboriginal resistance to the sadism of the colony's god and guns. Its gripping plot, extraordinary black and white characters and elegant prose will haunt you long after the last page. We talked a lot with Paul when he was on the podcast about his tussle with inserting himself into such a significant and desperately sad part of Aboriginal history with European settlement. How did you approach the matter of telling your story from an Indigenous, from Indigenous characters' point of view? Yeah, um, the first thing to say is that I don't at all know that I got it right. Um, I, I've tried to adopt an approach and the approach could well be wrong, the end product could be wrong. So there's that. I feel Paul has often talked about the fact that every time Australia Day comes around, Aboriginal people are recruited to explain the hurt again and again and again and that the Aboriginal journalists who Paul works with often say to him I'm sick to death of carrying the heavy lifting here how about white people have a look at their own complicity and I think that's such a valid point that a lot of writers steer away from this material because the the shorthand is I'm scared of getting in trouble and no one's ever clear about what the trouble is or, or who you're in trouble with but I don't want to get in trouble and I think that's a cop-out. We have a responsibility to examine our history forensically and as white people we have a responsibility to examine our guilt. 
and, and the, the generational nature of the guilt. And to leave the storytelling only to First Nations people is to abdicate the responsibility. So there is definitely a line at which you have to stop because there needs to be room for First Nations storytellers and First Nations stories. And these are cultures which have always used stories as currency, as, as cultural currency and as the evidence of authority and the evidence of tradition and religion and the cosmos. And all of those things have to be left alone by settler writers. But that's a different thing from opting out of examining colonialism. And I think that responsibility remains, and that's what Paul's done so, so very well. Whether you know, I, as an individual white Australian writer, have got the balance right as to where I've stopped and whether I've even got the research right. Those things are, are up for discussion and, and I genuinely don't know the answers. How did, how did the tussle, how, how did you reconcile it with yourself? I imagine you tussled over so many aspects of this book, so many conversations, so much scene setting. How, how, where do you land? Uh, well, I spoke to a lot of people. I, I asked Palawa and Pakana people for permission and I asked them their thoughts and I showed them drafts and it needs to be said that, that there were times where people said, look, I want no involvement in this, you're on your own and, and that's entirely fair enough. But yeah, I'm not a solitary novelist in that I like to collaborate and I like to talk to people about drafts and I'm very fond of a kind of armchair approach where you just get a good friend and, and thrash it out and I do a lot of that stuff. And in doing so, I guess you start to see the, the parameters or the framework of what the moral problems are and you can start to develop approaches to it. But it's, it's many, many drafts down the track before you can iron out the bugs, assuming that they're ironed out at all. Well, you just have to leap in, I think, as a fiction writer, don't you? You do. You just have to, at some point, you just have to say, right, time's come, yeah. in I jump, in I plunge. And the other thing that's probably worth raising here is that for most fiction writers, you're not starting with all of these challenges front of mind. You're starting with a story that has engaged you in some way and you're following your own nose into it. And it's only when you're well into the story that you start to see what the ethical challenges are. So with the storytelling, tell me about the first time. I can remember exactly where I was when I first heard that there were no Tasmanian Indigenous folk which was a 1970s myth, as we now know, but that's what I was told at school and I can remember my mm. absolutely appalled response to that. How could that be? Can you remember the first time you heard the story of Tasmania and, and the systematic rounding up and murder of so many thousands of Indigenous folk on that island? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I can't remember the, the moment that I heard it, but I remember the moment that I unheard it, which was a documentary called Black Man's Houses that came out in about, I don't know, 1992, which set out the story of the resistance to that idea. The people, you know, like Michael Mansell, going way back, people who had consistently maintained their presence in the face of being told they didn't exist and the ways in which they went about trying to draw attention to Wybelina and the, the, the long, slow process of getting people to let go of their ignorance. That moment stands out for me, very much so. Well, you're certainly contributing to our, our knowledge of this most extraordinary time. And, and Jock's book, The Settlement Potties, is a real example of when fiction can often 
it's the flesh on the bones of the hist- whatever the history and the facts are. You've allowed us so so eloquently and and often with great difficulty too for the reader, but to go into these these dark and grim spaces and there are a lot of them jock in your novel but one of the most uplifting moments or or situations is the friendship between the two orphaned children Welk and Pippi who find themselves together on the long walk through the island before they get on the boat and they go off to Flinders Island beautiful friendship and torn savagely apart but what were you trying to tell us the reader with that the purity and the delight of that Probably the base of that idea was the notion that a lot of the children who were taken to Ibelina had their identities taken off them, that they were orphans not only in the sense of their parentage but in the sense that they had lost their family, clan and tribal groups. They'd lost their traditional names, they'd lost language, they'd lost all sorts of things. So they were effectively erased before they arrived. And the classic example of this is William Lanny who was the youngest child of the last family to be taken to Ibelina. And when he arrived, it's not Robinson, it's a subsequent commandant, but the commandant records that William Lanny, had his name has been lost, which of course is an impossibility because he came with his parents. So what it really means is that the commandant has chosen not to record that traditional name and has renamed him William Lanny. And at the other end of William Lanny's life, he lived to 74 or something, On the island or did he move away? No, he survived the island and died in Hobart and he was one of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people towards what they thought was the end who was anatomised. He was cut up for the phrenologists to examine and he knew it was coming and he begged them not to do it to him and they did it anyway. And so it means that at the start of his life he lost his name as a child and at the end of his life he lost control of his body and... Those book-ending insults, I think, say so much about the cruelty of the enterprise. So Pippi and Wilk are there to examine that first insult to children, which was, I'm taking away your people, your parentage, your language, I'm even taking your name off you and I'm giving you a new one. It's such extraordinarily callous behaviour. And I guess that for dramatic purposes, the reason they're drawn to each other is that there's something that fills that vacuum. Pippi is smaller and younger than Welk and she's immediately magnetised towards him because there's not a parent, there's not a sibling, there's, there's just this boy who looks like her. It's a beautiful part of it. Not so beautiful, of course, is the catechist. Pure evil, as Moonboy <laughs> would say. Pure evil. Can you tell us all the role of a catechist and what you wanted to create with this particular character? Uh, yeah, so there were a succession of catechists at the settlement of varying types. A couple of them seem to have been reasonably compassionate people and one or two of them appear to have been monsters. So these are lay people? Uh, are they, mm. they haven't done any theological training? I think they have, but it's all about teaching scripture, as I understand it. And there's, in fact, there's a great PhD thesis that I found about religious teaching at Waibalina, which is reasonably complex and it's a product of its time. But the catechist was there to lead people to Christ, I suppose. He... So there were historical figures who filled this role. In the context of the trilogy, he is the continuation of Mr Fig. I don't think that's any big spoiler to anybody. I was not going to say that. (laughs) It's pretty hard to miss. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he's the last of the continuing characters from the series in this book. Well, I did wonder whether we might have seen Joshua Grayling's daughter appearing in some shape or form there. But no, it was good to see Mr Fig again. Yet again, he fills me with horror, but 
Jock, it's just an it's it's a really outstanding story, and as you said earlier, you are dealing with some some most difficult parts of our past, in particular, the commandant's obsession about body parts and sending them to museums overseas. Again, showing his own ambition, and he was, I imagine, financially compensated for sending those things. But how he actually does it to each member of the community that dies is appalling. How do you sleep with yourself at night (laughs) when Um, all of this shocking stuff is happening in your imagination? Well, it started with, obviously I read all of the diaries that Plomley had collected. Plomley is this historian who undertook the enormous task of deciphering Robinson's handwriting for starters, but converting all of these diaries into transcribed form and then adding on letters and official documents that corroborate everything. So they're huge projects. And amongst them are all of the mortuary reports. So for everybody who died in the settlement, there was a post-mortem conducted by the surgeon. But Robinson went to every one of them. And I wondered a lot about that. It's a strange kind of voyeurism. He has no administrative need to be there. He can simply take the surgeon's notes and post them to London or whatever he wants to do with them. But he went to every one of them. And that leads to a suspicion about the theft of body parts for a start. But it also says something about Robinson's controlling nature that he needed to be there. And again, a bit of voyeurism thrown into the bargain. So I was really struck by that tendency of his, but also by the immediacy that he was clearly talking to these people within hours of watching them being dissected. And that takes a peculiar kind of detachment that that I don't think is discussed much about Robinson. He sounds like he was a man who was becoming a a victim of the the solitude, the ambition, that he he was losing his mind. I think that's entirely probable. And one of the underlying themes of the book is about what guilt does to people that if you're carrying around the burden of your conscience day after day in this lonely place and the score the storekeeper is a great example of this that he towards the the end of the book he's going mad and it's because people carrying this weight on their shoulders you don't get to do it for free i think there's a psychic cost to it and tell me about the black dog The Black Dog comes from a tiny, tiny reference in Robinson's enormous diaries that everyone overlooks, which is that he says at one stage, it's some kind of hearsay and I forget what it is, but it's like I was talking to this bloke who had received this letter about this incident, which was that there was a shipwreck on King Island on the other side of Bass Strait, which is more than 200 kilometres away. It was a ship called the Neve, and that, that shipwreck is historically verified. The wreck is on the bottom. But he says that a piece of the ship broke off and that a dog had survived the wreck and got on this piece of wreckage and that the piece of wreckage had blown east and wound up on Flinders Island and that this dog had successfully walked off the piece of timber onto Flinders Island. And Robinson, I think, dismisses it and says, look, I've got no idea if this is true or not. But I thought, what a beautiful little nugget of information. So like happens a lot of times when you're researching and you find something great, you start bending your story arc to to put it in which is not really good form, but I did. And it meant that I had this dog and I needed to think about what I was doing with the dog. And I don't know that I ever entirely settled the idea in my mind and I'm really interested in what readers get from the dog. But I suspect the dog is conscience, that it watches and it tends to appear when people are in crises of conscience. 
when Robinson's doing autopsies or when they're burying Manalagena or moments like that, when the storekeeper, who, who actually is the most or the least unappealing of the white characters, when, when he cracks up and starts drinking and, and he sees the dog watching him and he's quite apologetic to the dog. Robinson, at one stage, two stages, kicks the dog and he tries to collar the dog. And to me, the metaphor works there that he's trying to put a collar on conscience and you can't. So maybe that's what the dog does. But I think every reader will have their own individual version of that idea. Well, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant novel. Congratulations again. The settlement is an absolutely um, superb, superb read. Difficult at times, as I said, but everybody must do it. Absolutely must do it. And in fact, read the entire trilogy if you haven't yet. Jock, it's just a pleasure as always to have you with us. Before we go, speaking of islands, <laughs> we do have this – producer Mindy Williams and myself love to ask our guests that if you were on an island, a desert island, and if you were allowed just one book or indeed one author, who would you choose or what book would you choose? Is it allowed to be a practical choice? You can say whatever you want. It's your <laughs> island and it's, your, it's your, your book parcel to take. I heard the, um, the English – Crime writer Anne Cleves answered this question for Desert Island Discs and she was asked what her luxury would be and she said a pile of notepads and a box of pens. It's <laughs> not a luxury. Oh my God. But, it's work. <laughs> but my answer is that I would have Swainson and Hutchins's Sea Fishes of Southern Australia because it's an illustrated guide to every fish in the water and it has a table at the back as to their edibility. So I was the first time I bought a hand spear... The, the friend I was with said, you can only do this if you're going to also buy this book so that you don't shoot fish you can't eat, which is a really good policy. And I love Swainston and Hutchins. And in fact, when we started Great Ocean Quarterly, we found Roger Swainston, who's the artist, and we got him to paint, or he didn't paint them for us, but we started buying his fish images for the magazine. He's a beautiful artist. Jock, I'm bemused. I hope it keeps you company on your desert island. <laughs> I would actually be asking for your entire oeuvre myself, rules of backyard cricket on, on the Java Ridge quota and, of course, as we said, the Ferno Islands trilogy, which now finishes with the most excellent, The Settlement. Can't wait to see what the next book is. We're moving off the Ferno Islands, I would understand. <laughs> we are. are we going somewhere a little less chilly? Yes, only a little bit north. It's set around Melbourne. Oh, good to hear. Yeah. Contemporary? Yeah. Oh, yes. It moves through time from the turn of the 20th century through to late 20th century. So it's almost contemporary. I wanted to stop just short of the internet because I didn't want to be writing about an age in which you can know everything. I like the unknown bit, you know. <laughs> Even with the internet, I don't know everything. Who does know everything with the internet? Well, you can it look clouds, up It clouds yeah. your – yeah, you can, but it clouds your judgment even further. Jock, great to have you on the book pod. Thank you so much for visiting today. Thanks, Corey. And don't forget, everybody, The Settlement by Jock Sarong is published by our good friends at Text Publishing and it is available at a good bookstore near you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.